As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have Alka Tandon, Senior Vice President of Finance and Strategic Programs at Gainsight. Alka is a Haas MBA alum with over 20 years in corporate finance, operations, and mergers and acquisitions. Alka has had an amazing journey, including as an angel investor, limited partner at Operator Collective, a member of Fortune's Most Powerful Women, and a founding member of Tech CFO. Welcome, Alka, and great to have you on the show. So happy to be here. I'm super stoked to have this conversation today. Could you maybe kick us off just to talk about where you grew up and where did your story begin? Yeah, I always joke that I'm the original Silicon Valley unicorn because I was actually born and raised in Silicon Valley, like literally Mountain View. I know. And there's not many of us anymore. There used to be, but everyone's spread out. And I think even with COVID, probably even more. But yeah, my father was an engineer. He was an immigrant um, from India, came here, got his PhD. And back in the 70s, had heard there was a place called Silicon Valley, came here with my mom. And, you know, they were here for the American dream. And I was a firstborn here from both sides of the family. And there were a lot of hopes and dreams kind of like on our shoulders. But it was a great place to grow up. And that's really how I fell in love with technology. I feel like I was born in it and it's in my blood. And I have several family members that are in in the industry as well. That's awesome. What was it like growing up as a kid in the Valley? I know a lot of folks come to the Bay Area or Silicon Valley as as an adult or for professional reasons, aspirations. What was it like being a kid and seeing that growing up? It was, and you hear this with a lot of places these days, it was such a different place. I remember orchards everywhere. I mean, there were literally like orange orchards and apple orchards. So it's still, it was not, you know, definitely not as built out. And I think Silicon Valley was very different back then, too. It definitely still had it it was a place that was probably more than other places in the U.S., a place where the immigrants came to. And they've been coming to, I think, San Francisco for some time. But I think that really brought a wider population of people, you know, coming here. And I would say Silicon Valley back then, it was definitely we were kind of rebels. At least that's how I like to kind of like look at ourselves. You know, we were rebels. Not everybody really understood exactly like what we were like doing here. I remember even in my early days of banking, you know, Wall Street, you know, didn't really pay attention to people in tech. So it was kind of like a really, I think, a beautiful kind of innocent almost time for the industry. And I don't think anybody could have expected really what that industry was going to become. I think it's I consider it kind of like the modern day renaissance of our time. And then, of course, with it, the area has just changed a ton with a lot more people, different sort of personalities. And of course, with that, there's always good things that come with it and things that you sort of miss of the old times. Definitely. Did you have any like early memories? Did you think about even going into tech or finance as a kid or was it just like a pretty normal experience? I've heard stories of classmates who have grown up in the Midwest or small town America. Did you know like you were going to be a a tech executive one day or or was that totally just (laughs) out of the radar? You know, I I wasn't sure. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I, um, you know, I am a child of two Indian parents. So there was certain career paths that were more encouraged than others, shall I say. Very familiar um, with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so very common among some of my friends, too. But I think that I really what I saw in technology was I saw like a lot of like hope, 
I thought it was exciting. And as I, of course, as I was growing up a bit older, I saw that it was slowly changing the world. There, I definitely have a theme in my life of wanting to be a little bit rebellious. And so I think, you know, as I went to college, I knew one thing, I didn't want to be an engineer for sure. But I was really interested in business and finance. I was always really good at math. And I was just very interested in how the good businesses versus businesses that did do well. I should also mention my mother was um, a business owner. So in, in addition to getting the technology, I kind of got the business kind of bug as well. And so that's how I just naturally gravitated towards like tech. Definitely not a foregone conclusion, but now it's like all things in life. It kind of makes sense. Fits my personality. You kind of talked a, a bit about college. You know, where did you end up going to school and how did you enjoy your time uh, uh, down maybe in a sunnier or warmer climates? Yeah, I went down. Um, I went to UCLA. I remember struggling with it, though. I was like, should I go back east? And I thought I was going to go back east for business school, which, which did end up happening. But I, I went to UCLA and I actually ended up really like loving it. I think it was, I mean, UCLA is a great school. I had gone to pretty much private schools for most of my life. And I had gone to um, private Catholic high school. So I was ready for a big change. Like I just really was like ready to just go, go live life. And UCLA definitely did that for me. It was a great education, great school. It was also just frankly a lot of fun being, <laughs> being in LA. And, you know, I got to meet some people and had some interesting parts of my life. And yet at the end, I was ready to come back. I knew I really kind of missed the intellectualism of the Bay Area. And so I, I was very clear that at the end, Either I was going to go to New York for banking or I was going to come back and be in tech. And I said, I think right now I want to be in tech banking. So there I go. There's this hair I kind of came back home. Yeah, absolutely. What did you do after college? And, you know, as you kind of alluded to, and what were you thinking about in your career before business school? I, I know a lot of folks might be in that time of their lives. You know, what, what were you thinking as you're working in banking and then working in tech specifically before you were transitioning to come to Haas? Yeah, things have changed. And so I think at that time, it was, there were just a couple paths. And, and most of them were, you're going to go into consulting or you're going to go into banking, or you, hopefully you can get into like a rotational program in a company at that time. There were a lot of rotational programs. So I knew I didn't want to be traveling out of a suitcase constantly. I at least want to be in my bed every night. And so I actually, I went into banking and it just felt like it fit me a little bit better personality-wise. I specifically decided to go to like a boutique bank. I ended up going to Broadview International, which is now owned by Jefferies. And I really appreciated them because they were renegades in the banking world. They had all come from traditional banks and decided like, oh, well, tech seems interesting. And they kind of, they created this. They were all had these traditional backgrounds, but they kind of created this concept and were actually really respected like industry experts. And I had some friends who'd worked. I had friends that worked a little bit all over the place at the big banks and small banks. And actually, Broadview was a little, was the most interesting. So I was very clear that was the place I wanted to work. And I got in. And that's where I landed. And it was a great time. I mean, we learned a ton, the banking program. You learn a ton in a banking program. But I'll also say, I made lifelong friendships. Even to this day, one of my dearest friends is Cheryl Chang. And, you know, she lives like close by. And I'm still at both her and her husband, like I'm still really good friends with. And I see like on a regular basis, like 20 years later. So it was a really beautiful time of my life. That's awesome. Maybe uh, for folks who have been in, in the industry for a while, you know, what, what was it like being in tech banking then? And you know, what were some of the things that you were working on or getting excited on as, as you were kind of, I think, as you were saying, you're a bit of a renegade or at a forefront when it comes to 
you know, tech banking, it's so, I think, a little bit in a different place today, maybe a little bit more of a mature industry and very predictable. But then it was definitely a different place. Could you maybe share a bit of, of, of that history? Well, I think one of the reasons also why I chose Broadview is I felt like they were the champions for the founders, you know, at that time. So they did a lot of sell side work and we did some buy side, but and it was only M&A. We really focus only on M&A. And I have being a daughter of an immigrant and having several like entrepreneurs like in my family, like I really sort of appreciated that. They were kind of looking out for the guy that actually like built the companies and getting them ex- exit. And I also got so and I also got a chance to like work with not only the great people that actually worked within Broadview, but also externally got to work with some really incredible founders and get really excited about what they built and learn their stories of like how they got there. And for a lot of them, it was back then people really, yes, sure, of course, they wanted to make money, but they were just really excited about the technology and building something great. And I think that kind of just always excited me. And I was always taken aback by like the creativity of the technologists and the founders as well. I think we would just operate a little bit in a vacuum because regular Wall Street really wasn't paying attention to us. The big banks. Maybe they had one or two at the time, but really kind of, we were kind of just operating. It was very quickly thereafter that all of a sudden there was like the tech boom and people started like paying attention. But then even after that, it got pretty, it was pretty quiet. So I think the big shift is just that the attention being paid to Silicon Valley now, like all around the world and the true respect and the appreciation of what technology can do and how it not only changes lives, but is actually the bread and butter of our like economy and, and sort of worldwide and the actual impact. I just don't think people quite got it back then. And venture capital was also like a big black box. Like people didn't just quite understand it. They found it way too risky. Fast forward to today, and there's so much money being thrown around. And so it's been quite interesting to sort of like watch it. That's awesome to hear. A lot of folks might say, you know, you're an amazing job and a career space, even early after graduating from college. What made you think about going to get an MBA? Had you always thought about getting an MBA or or how did that come into the picture? And then how did you end up, you know, applying and getting into Haas? Yeah, I definitely came from, come from one of these families that collects degrees. I say if there's a degree. Also very familiar. I had a feeling, Chris, I had a feeling would be familiar to you. You know, I have cousins who like have three degrees. You know, I have one cousin who was like a, I think he went to Cal. He was an environmental engineer, then decided to get his MD. Sure, why not? Higher education was definitely always very important in my family. So it was something that I thought I was going to do. However, also having the rebellious side, I was never going to just do something to sort of do it. I was at a point where I was like just done with banking. I started off at Broadview and I actually worked at W.R. Hambrick for a bit too. That was a startup bank that was doing something really novel, an auction process for IPOs, which I think was just way too early for its time. Google went out with a version of Salesforce went public with a version of it. And then it just never took off. It had a lot of resistance for the rest of the banking world. So I was a little bit done. I was a little bit done with banking at that time and really decided that, okay, the next step for me was I really wanted to be part of a company and its journey and not be kind of there, kind of at sort of the end. So I had a couple options. I could just go in, you know, straight into a company and I knew I could probably go to like Corp Dev or like a mid-manager, or I could go to business school and get a crash course in all the different aspects of business. And so I thought there's, I probably at that point, I was going to stay in the barrier area. So there's probably only two schools I'm going to go to. 
and I applied and I was thrilled to go to Berkeley. So it was, it was a dream come true, uh, truly. And it was a little bit of a full circle moment for me. Um, a little bit like this conversation is also because my father, when he had come to the Bay Area, he had accepted the Berkeley at, for his PhD program and acceptance at Montana University. And Montana University, he didn't have as much money. And so they gave him a full ride. And he I just didn't understand the value of Berkeley. And so he was a little bit heartbroken that I didn't go there for undergrad. And so that I finally made it for grad school. Like he was like really happy. So it was great. Yeah. What was Haas like when you got to campus and what were you hoping to get out of the program? I mean, you had a experience in school already, had professional experience. What was it like when you stepped onto campus and into the MBA program? So I think I was really looking to get a little bit more well-rounded. All I had done really up until that point was banking. And so I was really looking to get a more well-rounded, you know, education around marketing, around sales, around operations. And so that's really kind of was what my goal was. I think what was interesting about it, though, is I think that what I ended up getting, which was equally as valuable, was like the soft skills, the presentation skills, the ability to, to, you know, like even debate with like-minded people which really I hadn't done as much when you're kind of a more junior person, you know, in banking. And the chance to really like sit there, really analyze different like business scenarios critically. And also, and getting just the varied experience from everybody in the class, also internationally. I think that was huge. It's just, it's, I remember when I was making the decision, I had someone who was a bit of a mentor and a prior boss from banking. And I was like, you know, I, I think I want to do this, but he could sense a little bit hesitation. And he's like, well, what are you, what are you hesitating? I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I could just keep going. And, and he's like, Alka, it's two years of your life. Two years of a life, you're going to live a long life. And do you think it'd be time well spent? I said, I think it'd be great time well spent. And he's like, yeah, then, and then go for it. He was also a hostile alum. So that's what I was looking for. And then I, I feel like I got so much more. Also a place where I made lifelong friends that I'm still really good friends with today. Oh my gosh. Do, do you have any fond memories of your time at Haas? Any classes or any events or anything that you still remember to this day? So many, but the one thing that I remember the most is actually our international trip. Our international practice So I don't know if they still do that. I had set a goal that I really wanted to go to Africa before I was like, I think I was like 30 or something. And so I was really hoping they were going to send me to Africa and we did. So we went to Ghana. So for, you know, there's groups of four and for four or five weeks out of, you know, and I think it was like June, we all land in a country. And I think that, first of all, I love the symbolism of it, that all of us are going at the same time to like all these parts of the world and just knowing all these groups are everywhere. I think I was just like, really, it's such a cool, special thing. And I was surprised to learn not, I thought this, everyone at different business schools did this and they don't. It's very unique to Haas. And very much Haas-like, I think, as well. Yeah. And I remember landing with four relative strangers. With the four of us actually didn't interact that much in business school. And we had so many incredible moments. We were like the team. I'd like to say that I do think that people were like talking about us. And probably <laughs> for many different reasons. I'd say we almost got arrested. Oh, wow. <laughs> into a car crash. <laughs> we literally visited two jails while we were there. Yeah, I mean, we we really, you know, and some of it was a little bit scary. One of our colleagues got on TV there. We visited with a world-renowned professor. I remember one day in the morning, we were literally walking in the slums 
literally walking the slums. And that night we were at some very senior political officer's house. It was like, you know, it was a little jarring. But my favorite moment is that we had these neighbors and they, they were so kind to us. One day they brought us food. Another day we told them that, hey, we, oh, we just love your outfits. And we came the next day and there were just four outfits for us. It was the kindest thing. And we told them, we had told them that like they talked to us about going to church. So we said, um, oh, yeah, we'd love to go with you one day. That night, I'll just say we had quite a night. We were up till four in the morning. We were talking. We were bonding. We finally go to bed at, I think it was around 5.30 in the morning. We get a knock on the door. We're ready for church. And we didn't know that you met like today. And let's just say we were still feeling the couple hours before because it was a late night. We just put on our clothes. We went, you know, we said, we're going to need like 20 minutes at least. And now we're driving. The sun is coming up. And we're like, oh my God, what are we doing? We arrive. And what we see is a unfinished church with plastic chairs. And, and we sit there and we quickly find out we are the special guests of honor that day. And I remember like this, and I get it's like, I can feel the chills like already. Like I remember like the sun coming up and they were singing their prayers. And I, I think it was probably the most beautiful service I've ever been to. And I've, I've been to a lot like around the world. And I still just remember it, how like special it was. And in that unfinished church with the wind blowing and the prayers in the morning and being able to do it with my classmates, it was like really special. That's amazing. Wow. How do you go from that to back in the workplace? And where did you decide to go after graduating? It's hard. You know, I mean, you have all these incredible experiences and you just don't want it to end. I mean, it's such a great time and it's a great and it's a time that you're, you know, there's a lot of validation for you to sort of like take it off. I had been doing banking and, and mostly like semiconductors and some of these are harder like technologies. And I knew I was ready for something sort of new. And at that time, I was very interested in media. And so there were a couple of the big ones. And at that time, Yahoo was still one of the big ones. And I decided that it was best. I hadn't really worked at a large company. So I decided to go, you know, to Yahoo. And I got to work on some really cool products. Like, you know, I think Flickr is, is a great one. For those that don't know who started Flickr, it was Stuart Butterfield, who now, who started Slack. I got to work with him, you know, a little bit and got to work on, you know, Yahoo Video and some of their search products. So it was a really great training ground. And it was actually a lot of fun. Also, Yahoo was a really fun place. So it was a great time. But I also quickly realized that I wanted more. And just at a big company, I just didn't feel like I was going to get more. And so it was sort of like, okay, once I was recruited into IGN, it was like, I just knew it was like just time for me to go. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, Elka? Like, how do you go from, because I'm, I'm sure some folks who are listening might be in that position where they're at a big firm, you know, how did you go through that transition phase, you know, even mentally thinking through it? And then, you know, how did you end up going through that process to be at IGN? Yeah. I think you have to just re sit and just really get honest with yourself about, first of all, you know, no, look, nobody really knows at the end of the day, like where they're actually going to be in 20 years, but you can know kind of like what makes you light up. And really at the end of the day, I feel like everything we're doing is we're really just trying to figure out how to like light ourselves up. And I would even say it's probably our duty <laughs> to get lit up for like the world, right? 
So I had to get really honest about what the types of things I wanted to do, like on a daily basis, the pace that I wanted to go to on a daily basis, the the opportunities that I wanted, you know, to sort of do. And so I think it's really just takes a lot of just self-awareness. But then it's also, you know, like what you want to do. And then I also think it's like what you're really like good at. And I, and so I'll give you an example. I think at that time, I was still trying to learn how to kind of do the whole political game. And that was actually really hard for me. And I didn't really enjoy it. I was really looking forward to just digging deep, building things. And just, I just wanted like more. I wanted more exposure. I was just very ambitious at that time. Instead of like spending time, frankly, playing that political game. So I had to get really honest with myself. Now, there are some people who are brilliant at it and do it so well. And I just was like, I don't think so. It's like what you like to do, but also what you think you're sort of really good at. Absolutely. What did you end up doing at IGN? And I know you had a a great number of years there. You know, how did you manage your career after um, leaving such a big company like Yahoo at that time? Yeah, I feel like it was actually a little bit easier when you're at a smaller company to sort of like manage your career. I actually felt a little bit like I could get a little bit lost like in a bigger company. So IGN, IGN was interesting because it was, even though it was still owned by a large company, it basically ran on its own. And so I was really interested to um, work with the CEO. His, his name is Roy Bahat, and he actually runs Bloomberg Ventures now. So I was really excited to work with him because I knew he had done some really interesting things, you know, before. And But really what kind of got me going on it was the opportunity to build the finance group from um, kind of the ground up. So at that time, they were all the services were centralized and they were basically trying to make IGN like super independent because IGN was just didn't fit the rest of the portfolio. And so there was really not much there. There was controller and I think maybe one other accountant. And I was like actually the true like first finance hire. So the ability to do that, but also work with an incredible brand like IGN was really interesting. It was also everybody, if you're a gamer, at least, you know, the website. But what people don't know is actually behind the scenes, it was really portfolio products. So it was also the chance to work with, yeah, a lot of different business models. So they own IGN.com. They own AskMen.com, which was like a men's lifestyle. So those were kind of the media websites. But they also owned a tech licensing business, a subscription business. There was even a small retail business. We did a homegrown esports business. We were one of the first players in esports. So we got to work, I got to work through, I call it IGN actually my real MBA because we, and then we did about six, seven, eight transactions. At that time, we also owned Rotten Tomatoes, which we sold to Flickster. We did six, seven, eight transactions, eventually selling ourselves. And I got to really experience building a group from the ground up. That's amazing. I think a lot of folks who are moving up the ladder, you know, they get to a point where they they either just keep staying or ended up taking a different opportunity. You know, after having such like great experience at IGN, like what made you want to have a different change or to another challenge, especially after having all those different experiences in, in you know just a couple of years? Yeah. So after we sold IGN, I decided to leave. And up, of course, GNA usually gets absorbed by the company. So it was amicable and, and totally fine. I actually took some time off. I went to Europe for about six weeks and just needed to sort of just clear my mind. It was the best thing time ever. I encourage everyone to do that. And I came back and I really started looking at the tech landscape of like where we're, we're at. I think it's so easy to sometimes get absorbed in your job and everyone's trying to build a career. And then, of course, everyone has personal life that 
to just actually really take a step back and like see like what's actually like going on. It's not always like easy. And so I really try to make a point of doing it. And of course, if you have six weeks in Europe, you really have time to think through. So I saw, you know, media, of course, was valid. It was continuing to be valid. It was an advertising game for the most part. And at that time, Andreessen Horowitz had just sort of organized themselves. And of course, they, their famous manifesto that software was eating the world. And I, as I was looking for jobs, I was actually getting pinged for a lot of SaaS companies because I had done subscription-based modeling and work and, and finance. And so as I kind of looked deeper and deeper into it, I really realized like the, the potential of SaaS and just decided that this was a place, first of all, with many different verticals that would provide me a lot of flexibility and especially being like a strong finance person. And so decided to make the transition. And, and luckily it was the right decision. That's awesome. For some of the folks, I think it comes very intuitive for folks who have been in, in Silicon Valley or the Bay Area. Could you explain maybe a little bit more on the finance side? What's the difference between SaaS and like other models of selling technology? And why is that so compelling? I think for us who work in software industry, like we, we <laughs> it's like very apparent. But could you maybe explain a bit of, of that and how it works on the finance side? Sure. Overall, I'll say I'll just talk basics. You can have businesses like semiconductors that have a lot of inventory, require a lot of sort of manufacturing. And then you can have businesses that are like media or like SaaS that actually require none of that. And so already have like a step up sort of in terms of like cost structure and capital needs. Those businesses mostly just need people. People is the biggest cost. What makes SaaS in particular so valuable and sort of, sort of so interesting is really the subscription model. And with that subscription model where you're sort of essentially locking in sort of customers over sort of periods of time and interest of your technology, it becomes a almost self-perpetuating like business model. And it, as a business, you get incredible leverage for every customer that you gain. And so that's versus media, for example, that I was in. Whereas once you actually flash the ad, you're technically just going back and selling for, you're selling, going back to the customer and selling more. In SaaS, you're usually locking in customers uh, for a certain amount of time and you're able to actually take that revenue over a long period of time, hopefully doing multi-year deals. So it is both very cost-effective as a technology and on the top line, you get incredible leverage out of every customer you gain. So it ends up being a very efficient, financially speaking, for each customer. That's great. I know, Alka, from that time, you went through a number of transitions and really for each one, at least on paper, it just kind of looks like you, you just kept moving up and up and up. And finally, at Gainsight, you're kind of a senior executive now. You know, Could you maybe explain a bit about what that journey was like and how you navigated that? I know uh, for a lot of us Hasis and folks in the MBA program, it's a pipeline dream for, for some folks. Could you explain a bit what that was like for you and you know, both the good and maybe some of the hardships of going through that experience? You know, it's a journey. And I have so many friends and family members like all around the world. And they there's always this perception of Silicon Valley that everybody comes here and in three years, they're worth like $100 million or something like yeah. that, you know. <laughs> and it, we know it that is just not the reality. Like, um, sure, are the odds better here than other places? 100%. But the reality of it is for most people, it takes time. It takes time to really hone your craft. And that's exactly what I, I discovered. I don't know one person who didn't from like even my from business school 
Well, maybe I know one person. I'd probably, I think I do know one person. But other than that, everyone else has had, the, I would say, their ups and downs in their careers. I definitely, as I sort of went out, I actually started con- consulting at Actian and, and they said they were going to only hire someone at software experience in, in three weeks. And they're like, no, please stay here. We like, we need to hire you. Actian was super interesting to me because we were acquiring like three companies all at once. And they were basically like, you can own the integration and you can own finance. And I said, yes, that's something that I want to do. And I knew I was going to learn about a lot of different software products all at the same time. And it was also my first taste into private equity a bit as well. And so I did that. It was really interesting. The company was doing well. I just got the opportunity to work at Metricstream. And at that time, Metricstream was was being run by Shelly Archambault. And I was really wanted to work with her. So one thing definitely in a lot, and you'll hear this at Gainsight too, the opportunity to work with Nick, I really, and you heard it with Roy, I really do follow leaders for the most part. Like that's something that's super important to me. Shelly is fairly well known. She's like on the board of Okta and Nordstrom and Verizon. And just the chance to like be a bit closer to her was like super exciting. Metricstream was a leader in its space. So I also look for companies that are just obviously doing something sort of like unique. They started the industry and they were sort of leading and they also had great investors like Goldman Sachs, et cetera. So had my time there. And then eventually what happens is I get sort of like recruited out. And so Gainsight, and that's what happened with Gainsight again, you know, I came to Gainsight because I really saw the potential for customer success. I saw what they were doing. And also just, again, to be able to work with Nick was also a bit of a dream came true. Like for those who don't know him, he started an industry and I would say, but he also started movements like the human first movement. And he really believes that we could win by being human. We can win a business by being human first. And I think that and his, those values and the values of Gainsight really drew me here. So I've been here now for about three years or so. That's awesome. Can you explain a little bit what Gainsight does as a company and what makes Gainsight so different from the other folks that are out there in the market? So Gainsight was basically, I would consider Nick a founder. Gainsight, he came in like, I think a year or two after the company and really came and rebranded it. And he's certainly, I would say, the face of customer success. It's this idea that just because you've actually acquired a customer doesn't mean that you have to you actually stop working with your customers and helping them with the product. And so he created this concept of customer success. And now in most SaaS companies, you do have a customer department and group, and it's actually one of the fastest growing jobs out there. And you will often find a chief customer officer on your executive team as well. And so we create software to help essentially manage that group. And we are now also, you know, going kind of on the edges. We bought a company a couple of years ago called uh, PX, which is also a product experience product, product as well. But all and that actually helps customers see what's kind of going on with their product. And so our goal, our primary goal is to really help companies essentially build their ARR and help retain customers and help grow them. And but I would say the overarching goal is also really to do business well-being, you know, human first, as I mentioned. And the great thing was, I remember when we did the transaction with Vista last year, you know, Nick looked at all of us and he said, the most important thing about this is we just proved that we can win in business by being human first. And that I remember was like a very personally, just a very proud moment, like for me. 
Yeah. For those aren't, who aren't aware, Vista is a, an amazing, you know, um, technology investor and, and to invested in uh, Gainsight with a very large transaction, if I'm remembering correctly. And I think it's not just the initial investment for folks who are familiar in this industry. It's really the ability to grow that business even beyond what Gainsight does today, right? So super exciting for us who who see it from software. And I know that keeps you pretty busy, I can imagine. It's probably just a testament to all the great things that and everybody at Gainsight's already doing. Kudos to you. It was great. It was a great moment. The story is I finally decided to take a week off in Hawaii and two days later I got a call. That And so you can imagine where that vacation went, but it was fine because we were all super excited. As you said, they have about $80 billion in management. And so and if you put all their assets together, I think they're like the fourth largest software company. So yeah, it was fantastic. And it's been a really good journey where I think we're actually teaching each other. We learn a lot from them, and I think I'd like to think they learn a lot from us too. Yeah, Alka, I know amongst you know all your other amazing endeavors, you also end up becoming a, an angel investor and, and a limited partner over at Operator Collective. I know that's part of your journey. Can you explain a, a little bit what drove you to actually want to go into investing and what has it been like to have been an operator and now really coming into this new market space where operators are becoming or being asked to be investors as well in different uh, tech companies or, or other companies that might be out there? First, uh, to answer that, I should probably first tell you some of the struggles I had. And particularly, I can share like a story. You know, I'd always thought about being an investor, but I always felt like it was something that I wanted to do sort of but like later in life. And it actually all starts with a story that doesn't quite, it's not a great memory of mine, but I learned like a lot from it, which was, you know, I had a really good friend who is part of a sovereign wealth fund. And he'd come to me and I'd been telling him for quite some time that I really felt like they needed to have a presence in Silicon Valley. They'd just been doing like some investments here and there. And he finally realized he was actually not, it was like in a place where things maybe weren't going so well for him there. So he was just a close friend. And, and I think, you know, he would even say that I did my best to support him. And I gave him like a bunch of thoughts and he came to me and he's like, I really want you to be part of this fund and like, let's do it together. And I wasn't really sure at the time because sovereign wealth funds have their own interesting complexities. And I was at a point, you know, I've worked at some great companies with some great leaders, but I was at a point at one of the companies where I just wasn't, I didn't feel like things were just moving forward enough. And so I was just figuring out like what I really wanted to do there. And, you know, I finally went to my friend and I was like, I think I really want to do this. And honestly, I mean, since we're being casual and friends here, he went really dark on me. And then all of a sudden I found out that he'd hired somebody else. And it was like, I actually felt really betrayed. And it was like really upsetting because I had really supported him for like a really long time. And he said, yes, I want you to do this. And then all of a sudden, like totally did a 180. So as you can imagine, I was not friends with him anymore. And they've since opened up their fund here. But honestly, it also just put like a fire under me. And I basically was like, you know what? I'm going to figure a way to sort of like do this anyways. If this is something that I want, I, something that I want to do. You know, at that time, I started just putting sort of feelers out. And it was a great lesson for me. It was just amazing how, I swear, the universe just sort of aligned that I was hiking with a friend and we were talking about a bunch of things and she started talking about Operator Collective. And I was listening to her and I was like, wow, you know, this woman seems really interesting, Mullen Yen, who was starting this. 
And she looked at me. My friend's like, do you want in? I said, I don't know, but I think I'd love to have a conversation at least. So she got me in touch with Mullen and Mullen and I had a conversation. And I was just really blown away by Mullen. I mean, she's definitely someone who inspires me. So for those, Mullen had a career where she was a lawyer and a celebrated one at that. And then really had this belief that, well, operators will make the best investors because they're the ones that know companies. They're the ones that are doing it day in and day out. And why should they get a piece of the pie too? And then also really wanted to focus on women as well as minorities. Everything about it was very aligned, I would say, to sort of my values. And she had some incredible incredible people in her fund. So she has people like CEO Zoom, the senior pager duty. And so I was thrilled to be a part of it. And I've learned a lot about venture capital through my experience with the fund. I love what they're just doing to bring more exposure to people who normally wouldn't get venture capital. And this was honestly, frankly, before she was doing this before it became something that everybody needed to do. So after and after that, I was able to also just get into certain companies just as an operator. And you're seeing this more and more where companies will actually bring in a group of operators as part of their investment group. And then they will just like actually pull on the investors to help with just different things that might come up day to day. And, and so I think it is the natural prog- progression. I believe actually it is like the future for like investing as well. So, yeah, really grateful for all of it and the exposure and also just a great life lesson that as one opportunity goes, other opportunities come. And this way, I actually get to do both. I get to do my day job and I get to invest in great companies and learn from incredible people. That's awesome. Yeah, Alka, I know we've talked about a couple of different things. To be super candid, you're like probably a role model for a lot of young uh, women, especially, you know, who just like a super powerful female leader that's out there and just doing such amazing things year after year. You know, can you maybe talk a bit about that experience and what it's been like coming from, you know, an immigrant family or even being maybe a female leader in an industry that doesn't always have a ton of female leadership? You know, I know that's one of the things you said you're passionate about. Would love to hear just about your experience and your take on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's always interesting to hear every, you know, different people's stories. So I, I think first off, I was very fortunate to come from a family that valued education incredibly and also didn't see much difference in gender. I had as much expectations put on me as my brother did. And I really am grateful, actually, because I, I believe that came from my grandfather. He had back in the day, like I think it was in the 40s, actually like studied in England and gotten his master's and really believed that it was important for women and mothers to actually be out and working. And it was good for like children. I don't think I appreciated as much when I was younger. And now I look back and I went, whoa, he was ahead of his time. He truly was ahead of his time. And so growing up in that type of environment, I was always expected to do well in school. I think also going to presentation, which was an all-girls Catholic school, really helped sort of nurture that. All of us were, you know, there was no, obviously, and no gender bias. And, and we all got to just sort of like be ourselves. And we were encouraged to succeed and be powerful even when we were younger. I think what's the interesting thing is it was, I think it was actually when I went into the workforce 
that I, because I had been brought up that way, I would say I was almost probably a little bit naive because I didn't see myself as any different. I assumed anybody, no one else did either. And I, I learned it took, and it took me actually a long time to learn it because I do think when you're more junior, I'd like to think you don't see as much of a bias. However, I do find that as you get more senior and the stakes are bigger and there's more, frankly, there's more money involved that you do start to see certain things. And I don't know any woman who's an exec who hasn't had their stories. I will say probably one of the most disheartening things was, you know, being in finance, you often do have access to a lot of information. And I was at a particular company where I I, I did not have that. And then I got promoted and I did have access to it. And in that transition, a lot of some people had left. And when I opened the file and I realized that my salary had been growing at one quarter of one of my colleagues who was like 10 years my junior and didn't have my education, that was like incredibly disheartening. And it definitely ruined some, you know, relationships because I did actually call it out. <laughs> so I did call it out. It was an interesting sort of wake up call. And so what I would say, and I do think that also Silicon Valley, even though it's not perfect and there is no perfect industry, I do think it has made incredible strides, I would say, in the last five years or so. And I have seen the difference. I am so grateful to be working at a company like Gainsight that like continues to provide incredible opportunity for people of all walks of life. You know, we have a program, for example, called CSU that helps train people of all backgrounds to go into industry. And we provide scholarships and things like that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I stay here because of our values. But I would encourage all women that are moving up the ladder to, first of all, just talk to other women, really talk to other women. And again, know yourself. So, you know, there are certain things that are much more comfortable. I find advocating for yourself, like when it comes to salary and promotion, can often be something that's really uncomfortable. And so find your mentors, you know, have the conversation, even if it's not, doesn't need to be like a two-year mentorship, but find people who you can have that conversation and do things kind of in an authentic way, but also get advice and bounce things off of people. I think it's the most powerful thing you can do. And, you know, I certainly do that for several like people, both genders. But it's sometimes it's, it's okay to need help. It's okay to need help. And I would just really encourage it. Aka, I know we've had an amazing conversation here. You know, we, we have a tradition uh, on the podcast to end with a lightning round, just some fun, fun and, and short questions. So if, if you're down for it, we'll go through our lightning round and then uh, we'll be at the end of the podcast. I would love that. Let's do it. The first question that I have could be controversial, could be not. A famous place to eat when you were at Berkeley. Chat house. Oh, oh, very definitive. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, yeah, there was no hesitation there. Favorite class that you took uh, while you were at Haas? Ventures. I really like that. Very nice. Two more. What's one thing or one piece of advice that you recommend to future female leaders or folks uh, getting um, into tech? I would say don't underestimate yourself. And that, like I've tried to explain with some of my stories, you can really do a variety of different things. Just go for it. And uh, last question, uh, my favorite question, what's uh, one thing that gets you excited about the future? I'm sort of excited about 
how particularly like technology is sort of changing. And I'd like to think there are more conscious companies and how we're sort of merging sort of like conscious leadership and conscious values sort of with technology. And that's personally where I would like to see my career going. Alka, it's, it's been so great to have you uh, on the podcast today and wish you and all the amazing work that you're doing both in your company and investing. I wish you all the best in the future. Likewise, Chris, this was a wonderful chance for me to talk to you. And it was a, definitely a full circle moment to be able to come back. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>